Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 206. In this episode, we're talking about feminist trauma theologies with Dr. Katie Cross. Dr. Katie Cross is lecturer in practical theology at Christ's College at the University of Aberdeen. She's the author of The Sunday Assembly and Theologies of Suffering and the co-editor of Feminist Trauma Theologies and Bearing Witness. And her co-editor is last week's guest, Karen O'Donnell. Team members from the two cities on this episode include Dr. John Anthony Dunn and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So, John, what were some of the things that struck you as we spoke with Dr. Cross today? I thought this conversation with Dr. Cross was really helpful. I think it's really interesting because one of her big areas of research is secularism and atheism and really thinking about, you know, these kind of communities that are sort of replicating church-like experiences without faith and religiosity. And she's bringing certain questions to that space that she would be curious to ask about religious communities and trying to see like, oh, how, how might these secular communities approach issues like suffering and trauma differently? Can there be any sort of insights? And, you know, her sort of, you know, takeaway is that, you know, no one really handles suffering and trauma well. And that's really sad, sad and depressing. And this is why we need conversations like this with Dr. Cross. So I thought, you know, it's just really interesting to hear about her work and 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 how how important it is that we have conversations like this and that we hear from trauma theologians and that more people step into this space of trauma uh, and theology. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting to hear her reflect on the particular patterns of suffering and trauma that she had noticed among uh, various women that she had encountered, particularly in the first um, community that she studied, the Sunday's assembly, um, or sorry, the Sunday assembly. Um, and that she, um, you know, that really kind of piqued her interest. But um, I appreciated her emphasis on bearing witness and listening to the stories um, that you know, definitely aligns with some of what we've heard from some of our practitioners in this series. And so um, it's always interesting to hear the sort of practical and theoretical converge. And and of course, as a practical theologian, uh, she's right at that nexus. So yeah, such a good conversation and um, a lot of uh, attentiveness to the difficult nuances that come along with uh, studying trauma theology. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Katie Cross. Dr. Cross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited to talk to you today about feminist trauma theologies, or as excited as you can be to talk about trauma theologies. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, um, so feminist trauma theology is something that I can't take full credit for. Um, there are many trauma theologians, many feminist theologians that come before me, um, and a really significant partner in my work 
uh, is Karen O'Donnell, who, yes, I believe she'll, she has appeared on your podcast, will be appearing on your podcast. Um, we sort of got together at a conference um, and we had a little huddle at one point about trauma theology and what was going on with that. And just the ways in which we thought that feminism would really fit into that conversation. And we were really surprised that nobody else had actually done that. Um, and so that's how we came to this idea of feminist trauma theology. So my own work within that kind of sphere of things has been, I would say it's very experience focused. Um, I've done qualitative research on a couple of different things. I did one research project on purity culture and another one on gender-based violence out of that. Um, and it's just been really interesting to kind of take trauma theology in that direction. So that's sort of what I've been working on. Um, yeah, I can tell you more about it as we go. Yes, please. Thanks, Katie. Um, so one of the things that we've been asking a lot of our guests is to define trauma, mm. particularly with that being such a kind of foundational part of what you're doing. How have you defined trauma and, you know, who are some of the resources or what are some of the resources you found helpful? Yeah, that's a good question. I think trauma is so, it's so important to define because we're having a lot of conversations about it at the moment. Um, and one thing that I do wonder about is, are we overusing it? A lot of people say maybe we're overusing it. Um, what I will say is I'm not going to gatekeep it. I don't think it's something that you can gatekeep. It's a really individual experience. Um, I usually describe it as... It's, it's a kind of suffering, but it's suffering that doesn't go away, right? So it's it's suffering that keeps going and continues in your life. Um, other people have described it as a rupturing of experience um, of your body, of your um, bodily integrity, of your language, cognition, um, just everything around you. And I think it's fair to say it sort of overwhelms your normal coping mechanisms. So trauma is something that can't really be reintegrated back into your body. It just overwhelms. It can disconnect people um, from people around them, from their communities as well. Um, and I think it's also worth saying that there are lots of different kinds of traumas. And again, there are um, things that people can define for themselves or through their own experience. So, you know, you can have these big traumas that are like a big threat to your body, um, maybe an encounter with death or violence, something really huge, or you could have what we call little t traumas. Um, so you could have things like divorce or family issues, financial worries, kind of smaller, um, smaller things like that. And it doesn't really, I suppose for me, it doesn't really matter which of these you've experienced. Um, I mean, two people could experience exactly the same thing. Like, for example, <laughs> I don't know, two people could go through a terrorist attack. One of them might come out traumatized and the other one might say, I don't feel traumatized. And that's completely um, legitimate. So I find um, people like Judith Herman really useful for helping me define trauma and thinking about the body and also about what might come after trauma as well, um, which I'm sure we can get on to talking about, but she talks about how healing is not quite the right wording. And she prefers the mm. idea of remaking instead. So like a reintegration um, of traumas kind of integrated into your life and your experience. Mm. 
That's so interesting. I recognize that a lot of trauma theology in, um, tries to separate uh, suffering and trauma. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think with suffering, um, it's something that we can sort of get around or get over. Um, suffering is something that happens for a period of time, maybe. Um, and then, you know, particularly in light of Christian theology, we say, well, suffering is maybe part of human life. It's something we can get around or, you know, go over. Um, but trauma is something that just stays with us mm. and alters us and really has that kind of rupturing effect, which suffering doesn't so much have. If you go through a period of suffering, you can reintegrate that into your experience and just say, here's something I learned from and that I went through. But with trauma, it doesn't always um, work like that. So I think they're quite separate in that in that regard. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. And, you know, thinking about the intersections of trauma and suffering, I was curious in learning more about your work, whether um, suffering and trauma theologies was sort of your inroad, because your first book is The Sunday Assembly and Theologies of Suffering. And so you're looking at, in my understanding, experiences of suffering within this particular community. Could you say a little bit more about the project, but really about how this kind of led you towards these feminist trauma theologies? Yeah, definitely. Um, so this was uh, Sunday Assembly are an atheist church, secular congregation. And I was just so interested to find out how they dealt with things like trauma and suffering, because I'd studied a lot about, you know, different religious groups and how they were dealing with suffering and ideas like the Odyssey and where does God fit into all of this problem of evil, all of that. Um, and for some unknown reason, when I came to do my PhD, um, I think what actually happened was I switched on the radio one day and I heard this guy talking about how he'd set up an atheist church. And I thought, yeah. oof, that would make a good PhD. <laughs> um, and also, I wonder how people, when they leave church and they don't have that religious experience to draw on, I wonder how they, what their language is for suffering, what their language is for trauma. Um, so went away and spent three years researching them and they were a wonderfully welcoming community down in London, spent a lot of time in Edinburgh and Scotland as well. Um, and what I found was, you know, humans are just not very good at sitting with suffering is what mm. I found. So I kind of took what I'd found with the Sunday Assembly and I started to question whether this was something that the church did any better. And in my context, which is kind of overwhelmingly white Protestant churches in the UK, there really wasn't anything better. We weren't really offering anything better than what a kind of atheist church could offer. We weren't holding space for people. We weren't understanding trauma. Um, and I just thought that's so interesting that there are those kind of issues together. Um, so how did this get me onto trauma theology? Um, I suppose it was always part of what I was doing. Um, but then the focus was was really there. And the idea of um, feminist trauma theology was always there. I suppose because I've always been a feminist. I can't remember a time when I wasn't a feminist. And uh, I was kind of a frustrated feminist when I was writing the book because I was like, I really want to be putting gender in here and thinking more about it. Um, and it just hadn't come up on the agenda at that point. Um, so as soon as I was free of my PhD, um, I was free to go and explore those questions. 
Thank you, Katie. That's so interesting. I'm I'm curious what that sort of led you to want to explore and how you were um, digging into some particularly, um, I guess, sort of female experiences of trauma and suffering. Yeah, I think just um, through that project and through the kind of early work that I did, just noticing that there was trauma everywhere all the time um, and, and starting to think about that and, and how that affected different people in different ways. Um, so as a feminist, I've got a pretty kind of specific idea of what I think feminism is and that is as inclusive as possible. I think it has something to say to pretty much everybody. I like to think of myself as a very intersectional feminist. So I kind of looked at all of these things that were coming out of the project and I thought, you know, there's something here that I want to go and explore. And interestingly enough, it was just it was just an interest in purity culture that really led me into it. Because um, I had come from a tradition where purity culture was not really an issue at all. Um, so I kind of felt like I was spectating on something that I hadn't really been part of. And then I started to read about it, started to look into it and hear people's stories and traumas and all kinds of things. And um, it reminded me that actually in the UK, there was a real um, kind of upsurge in purity culture, like it just at the start of the 2000s. I'm dating myself. Yes, that's right. 2000s. Um, and so that, that kind of led me to think, well, I wonder how gendered that is. Um, and of course, it's absolutely gendered. It's absolutely a gendered issue. Um, in terms of the other work that I have done on gender-based violence, that kind of came directly out of the same project. Um, so quite a few of the people that I spoke to um, and the work that I do is very much, I go and talk to people. Um, I go and do interviews and sit with them and hear about their experience. And then that kind of informs the theology that I do. That project on um, gender-based violence came kind of straight off the heels of that because there was a lot of overlap, a lot of people explaining their experiences um, of purity culture and of the issues that they were facing, the things that had happened to their body, how they felt their bodies had been violated. There was a real undercurrent of violence to it. And with that, I kind of went back in and said to people, I hear you talking about gender-based violence. Like, can you elaborate on that? And some of them did. And then I found some more people to talk to about it. And that was... Yeah, that was kind of continuation. So I feel like once you unpick one thread, the whole thing just um, comes apart. So you kind of have to keep going. Yeah, so that that's really fascinating um, to to hear you talk about purity culture like that. We had Zach Wagner on uh, last year mm-hmm. to talk about his uh, book Non Toxic Masculinity and. Uh, kind of the ways in which you know men are affected by purity culture. Love to hear more about um, about the the work that you've done and the research you've done on, on this and how it relates uh, to women specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will say also that purity culture affects men really deeply too. Um, and feminism, I think, has a plan for everybody. So I think it's also really beneficial to men, um, and especially in terms of purity culture, where men are sort of forced within that um, framework to be really hyper-masculine um, in ways that are pretty damaging to them. I mean, it, it stops you from 
being able to talk about your feelings. It stops you from being able to be honest um, or have honest conversations about things. So that's really, really difficult. Um, what I found when I started the purity culture research was, first of all, it wasn't um, difficult to find people to talk to. There were a lot of women who came forward and said, that is my experience. I wonder if it was because I used the terminology of purity culture that they thought, oh, I can talk about my bad experience. Um, so I'm not sure that if you were in favour of it, you would necessarily call it purity culture. Um, you might just call it like a sexual ethic or what God wants or something like that. I don't know. There's maybe not a technical term. Um, and as I started talking to women, what I found was even if they had left situations where they had been subjected to purity culture, um, there were an awful lot of really, really difficult things that happened. Many of them had been sexually assaulted or raped um, and they were coming to terms with that. Some of them still didn't really have the language to express that. What I found was there was a lot of damage done to their bodies and there was a lot of ongoing trauma that was stored in the body um, because trauma really lodges itself into your um, your physical being, right? It affects your body, it affects how you feel. Um, we think about stuff like fight or flight, um, you know, we think of uh, panic attacks, the way that the body sends signals to the brain to say we're not safe um, and vice versa. And a lot of these women really, really struggled with things like going back to church or being around even their partners, their spouses. Um, I read one account where there was a woman who had eventually, this is not someone that I spoke to, but somebody whose story I kind of used in my research at one point. Um, and she came out, decided she wanted to start dating women after being in a purity culture situation. And she went on a first date with a woman and I remember because it was so visceral, she said she went for breakfast and ordered pancakes and that she was on her hands and knees 10 minutes later throwing the pancakes up because her body was telling her, you're in an unsafe situation, you should feel really guilty about this. Not only are you being seen out in public with somebody in this situation, but that somebody is a woman. So there's so many layers to that. It was the purity culture and then it was this heteropatriarchy and all these different things that were affecting her. Um, so I think what, what came into that was trauma is affecting bodies, women's bodies. Um, and there's so many ways that that is happening. Could you, could you also tell us about, you know, the, the types of um, re resources that you draw upon as you think about trauma from both the feminist perspective and the theological perspective, like the, the types of, uh, voices and types of mm -hmm. um, yeah, in, in influential thinkers that have kind of shaped your sort of feminist theological approach to trauma. Definitely. Um, this is both a cop-out and an honest answer. I hope there's any trauma theologian out there who hasn't been influenced by Shelley Ramble, Shelley Ramble's work, especially her work around Holy Saturday is really, really important. A lot of the kind of recent developments in trauma theology um, and we asked her actually to write the forward to our feminist trauma theologies book. And it was a real fangirl moment when she said yes. I was like, Shelley Rambo knows who I am. <laughs> this is so embarrassing and also exciting. Um, and she does some incredible work about resisting 
the rush from um, trauma to triumph. So she looks at it through this idea of, of Holy Saturday, this day between Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday. She talks about how people don't really slow down between the traumatic event and the hope um, that comes after that. And she talks about learning to dwell in, in Holy Saturday. She's quite heavily influenced by Hans Urs von Balthasar. She wants to kind of do justice to people's trauma um, and witnessing to that by kind of slowing down. And she talks about how on Holy Saturday, the disciples, the people who surrounded Jesus would have been traumatized because they just witnessed a really violent event. They need to slow down and take stock of that. But what makes this really interesting to me is I look at that and I think the Easter story is so feminist. <laughs> it's such a feminist space um, because women are so central to the Easter story, mm. to witnessing the death of Jesus, preparing his body for burial, looking after his body, attending the tomb, and then the first person Jesus speaks to when um, he comes back is Mary. And so he trusts a woman. And I think that says something about the the way that God thinks of women. So literally using them to communicate the most significant, important actions that God takes in Christ in the resurrection. So I think that's so, there's, there's something really feminist about that. And I think, yeah, Shelley's work has been so helpful. Um, both with that and both with this idea that we shouldn't be linear from Good Friday to um, the resurrection. There's there's space for us to experience trauma and there's, you know, we need to hold space for people who don't have that sense that death is overcome or that life wins out over death or, you know, that depiction kind of runs the risk of, of glossing over a kind of mixed experience of life and death. Um, so she's been really influential, definitely. And then, oh goodness, womanist theologians, Katie Cannon, Jacqueline Grant, Dolores Williams, all of them, um, just for the ways that they think in community together, the ways that they've thought as um, as a team, right? And I think this is something that I'm conscious of with Karen and I try to do with her, is we talk about doing trauma theology in community. So we don't just do it as individuals, we support each other because doing trauma theology is also quite traumatic. Um, it can be partly because you're drawing on your own experience sometimes or just because it's really, really hard to sit with people who are traumatised day after day and listen um, and do their stories justice. Mm. I think that, um, I suppose for me, it comes from womenist scholars and the way that they've collaborated, but that idea of collaboration and community and helping each other is really important. That's really beautiful. And yeah, that's, that does sound like really difficult work to do. Um, I'm curious, you've talked a lot about some of the descriptive aspects of your work that you're cataloging stories and sharing with these people and even yourself, uh, what you have experienced. Um, what what does the constructive part look like as you sort of speak into those stories and begin to build a trauma theology? That's a great question. Um, I think it's so interesting because there's not been a whole lot of qualitative or empirical work 
um, interviewing and things like that that's actually been done in trauma theology yet. Um, so I can tell you what I've done, but it's kind of difficult because I think we're right at the start of that. Um, mm. And actually, I wrote a piece for the Feminist Trauma Theologies book where I did nothing constructive with it at all. And that was a, a kind of methodological choice. Um, it was I wanted people's stories just laid out bare as they were. Um, and I didn't want to then say, OK, well, all of that's fine, but we have lots of hope and there's hope in Jesus and everything's yeah. going to be OK, because that just did not feel true to the people that I'd spoken with. And mm -hmm. yeah, I was very, very worried about doing their stories justice. So in that respect, I said, well, this is a consciousness raising, a conscious raising piece. Oh, wait, hang on. Consciousness raising piece of work. Um, yeah, this is a conscious, consciousness raising piece of work that I want to do. I don't want to um, take these stories and, and run with them in a really abstracted direction. Right? I can't go and do abstract thinking about this. I need to just let the stories sit with people. Mm. Um, and I did I did think towards the Odyssey and I did think towards suffering with that. I, I kind of thought, you know, this idea of blame and shame is becoming embedded in people's bodies. That's deeply theological. There's lots there. Um, I think with the later stuff that I've been working on with gender-based violence, there's a lot about um, God's anger, God's wrath, and how that has been used to uphold ideas um, of, I'm trying to think how to explain it, I suppose heteropatriarchal ideas that keep women down. Um, yeah. And that sounds like it's not that dangerous, but actually in churches, in church spaces, it's been used to tell women to submit to domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's awful. Um, and so a lot of that has been challenging the doctrine um, and going back into that doctrine and reading it through a lens of that experience and saying, I know we want to talk about certain issues like sin or, you know, we want to talk about the wrath of God or, the, you know, different ideas about the cross. And that's fine. Um, but also I think there's ways we can do that that are more trauma-informed or at least we can be open and receptive to people who have trauma because in every church, in every space, in every uh, theological space, every place that we encounter, you know, we're surrounded by people who are living with trauma. So mm. it's not it's not like I'm saying, oh, my research is really important, so we should listen to me. Um, it's more just that it's so common and mm -hmm. we need to talk about it more. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It strikes me that in a sense, what you're doing is um, talking about uh, rather than like doctrinal or formal theologies, you're really talking about some of the functional and lived yeah. theologies of your participants. I'm sure some of those are formal and doctrinal mm -hmm. and everything too, but um, there's so much that we um, intuit or infer about God um, because of our our situation. So, yeah, in it, I mean, you've begun to unpack that a little bit. Are there other things that you would want to name as these sort of like lived theologies of your participants? Ooh, there's some pretty dark ones. Um, mm. Yeah, there was another woman who this this one really connects with the sort of bodily trauma. Um, she had something called vaginismus, which is where the vaginal yeah. muscles don't 
work um, in the way that they should. And that was because um, she had been married and she was um, somebody who'd gone through a lot of purity culture and she had a particularly supportive partner who was really lovely, but still was finding penetrative sex really difficult. Couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but because the church was saying to her, look, you're a wife now, that's your responsibility. She felt she had to. And so there was this awful kind of bleak story that she had where her lived experience was, well, I have to be a good wife. But as you say, where is that? <laughs> where is that in um, doctrinal teaching? Where is that in official teaching? It's really not. It's just been inferred. Um, and so that's the real issue of it is it's a misapplication of theology. It's not coming from a you know reputable source or a revealed source or anything like that. It's just that people have decided this is the way. Um, and because of that, that had a real effect on her and her body. Um, the really good thing now is that she is free of all of that and living her best life. And, you know, she's a much happier place than she was when I spoke to her. And I, I love that for her. Um, but I think it is that kind of deep misunderstanding of theology that's happened that's really kind of perpetuated that and caused that. Thank you for sharing that story. It's um, tough to hear, but, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that is helpful as we think about, you know, these these, these stories of trauma. And like you said, with with the methodological choice uh, in that in that piece that you wrote earlier of, you know, just want to lay these stories out and not not really sort of jump so quickly to 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 what's the hope or, or you know, what's the constructive, you know, way forward. But I do wonder as you, as we think about like people who want to hear that hope or that you know that message. You know maybe 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 um, after they've done the work of reintegration or maybe as part of their work of integration, maybe maybe everyone's different and you know and don't want to obviously project or or push anything. But for those who do uh, perhaps want to you know hear some message of hope as they're processing as they're doing the work. What are some um, things that you would want to draw upon from scripture, Christian tradition, or, you know, from uh, the insights of, you know, womanists and feminist scholars? What, what are some things that you'd want to to really sketch out uh, as, as, as you say something hopeful? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Johnny, I went back to um, the work of Serene Jones recently, uh, who's another kind of founding mother of <laughs> trauma theology. You can tell by now that trauma theology is very woman heavy. And I think there's <laughs> a lot of reasons for that. Um, and she has this book, Trauma and Grace. She writes about being um, in New York after 9-11 and going through this sort of playback loop of trauma. Um, so seeing the same images over and over again of the towers falling and things like that. And she pulls out this example from um, Luke's gospel, which is Jesus on the road. Um, he encounters the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're walking along, a few of them, and they're just kind of talking to each other about what they've seen and how awful it was. And they're having this conversation and you know, it's kind of all over the place and then Jesus interrupts and he's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what happened? Not quite in a Scottish accent, but I sort of imagine that that's what he says. <laughs> and the disciples say, "What well, have you not heard about what's going on the last few days? And he goes, no, like, tell me, tell me about it. It kind of humors them. And then they tell their stories. And as they're telling their stories, Jesus listens really closely 
to them. And then they stop and they break bread and they eat together and then they recognize them and they go, oh, it's you. Um, that's interesting. And there's a few things about that encounter that I think are really hopeful for trauma or thinking about trauma. So one is that Jesus doesn't um, stay away from the disciples when they're traumatized. Um, even when their words are all over the place and they're kind of frantic and they're, you know, speaking um, in ways that are showing that they're fairly traumatized by what they've seen, by what's happened. You've got to think their whole livelihood's just fallen apart. Um, you know, one of their best friends has died. That's huge and really unexpected for them as well. So they're having this traumatic time and Jesus listens and he holds space for them to talk. Um, and then he sits with them and he gets them to eat as well. So there's something there about bearing witness to what's happened. Um, there's something there about how he listens very deeply and witnesses what's going on. So mm. he says, I hear you, like I'm listening. And then he sits down and, and eats with them. And there's something there about feeding the body, right? So kind of <laughs> helping regulate the body's responses by making sure that they're well fed. And so he does two things that I think anybody can do when they encounter trauma, which is first of all, listen to the person who has been through that really difficult time. And you don't have to give them words of hope, even just listening and, and being with them and being present and, and witnessing to that is really powerful. And um, it's so powerful that it is actually a whole um, concept in psychology. We talk about bearing witness as a really central concept in trauma therapy, right? So if you can tell your story, that starts to help you unpack that. And then also that Jesus recognizes that bodies are important as well, right? That people need to be fed and they need to be sit down on the road to Emmaus. And I think those are two things that I think are really hopeful, partly because they come straight from the Gospels, but also because um, it's, it's two things at least that we can do if we encounter someone who's been through trauma. Those are things that I think are really important. Pay attention to the body and listen, bear witness. Thanks for that. I really, uh, really appreciate that. And I, I wonder if, if there might be something Eucharistic to, to that, that. I'd love to hear at least if, if you have anything to uh, share with us. Um, you know, I, I've always loved that passage as sort of like, you know, we, they don't recognize the resurrected Jesus until he breaks the bread. Right. And this yeah, kind of this yeah. Eucharistic, Eucharistic moment of, of how, you know, we could think about Christ being present when the when bread is broken, uh, as we gather and 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 celebrate the Eucharist, I'm curious. Do you have any thoughts about the relationship between the Eucharist and trauma? Since you brought up this passage, and my mind goes to to uh, the Eucharist largely because I'm I'm working on a book on suffering and the sacraments at the moment, and so Brilliant. curious curious if you have any thoughts for us. Brilliant. Um, I will say Karen O'Donnell is the real hero on this. Um, my thinking on it is that. The Eucharist is in many ways quite violent, right? It's a violent breaking of the body of Christ. And then it's a reminder of the blood of Christ. And for some people that can be quite triggering. That's quite a triggering thing, especially if you've had a violation of your body or, um, you know, if, if you're not, you know, blood, these are sort of issues that people bring up. 
Um, so it is, I think it's quite a kind of traumatic thing in a way. It sort of reminds us of, of the traumatic things that um, Jesus might have experienced. And yeah, I, I wonder if that can sometimes be a really good thing because it reminds us that Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. They had a body that was injured. Um, but also at the same time, I, I'm really conscious of how sacraments can be exclusionary in some ways. Mm. Um, and especially with people who have lived with trauma. So I think that's definitely something I don't know that I have any more to say about that, but I think it's important that we think about it. Definitely. Yeah. Sounds like a really great book. We need that. As a silly side note, I do. I, I think I, I, I didn't ask her, but I think I noticed the time with our daughter that she first realized the language of the sacraments of, you know, drink my blood, eat my body. We were yeah. sitting in service and she was kind of coloring or something like that with her head down. And then he said, you know, drink or, um, you know, take, this is my body. And she went, <laughs> and uh, for, for uh, listeners, she's, you know, her eyes just went straight to the minister at the table so she was uh, clued in <laughs> right and it is something that's so interesting because even from a young age now we teach kids don't we well i don't know I've, I've got a dog the dog's my child but we teach kids about their bodies from a really young <laughs> yes, age that's right um and we teach kids about boundaries and you know who has access to your body and yeah. how to know how you feel and things like that so that's so interesting i think you know, it's almost intuitive. You sort of hear those words, here is my body broken for you. And you go, oh, I remember being about, I don't know, five or six and being in church and hearing those words and thinking, well, that's terrible. And I remember mm -hmm. I started crying and I said to my granny, I don't want to break Jesus. Why are they breaking <laughs> Jesus? Yeah. And, and, they said, and the minister said it was for me and I don't want that. And she was like, Oh, I, don't, I have absolutely no idea how to answer you, you strange, precocious mm -hmm. child. <laughs> yeah. But um, those are really important questions, aren't they? Yeah. I, in my understanding, in a lot of trauma theology, the suffering of Christ and the solidarity of Christ with us is mm -hmm. such a key component of this. And I, I love that because it doesn't move to a sort of like sunny hopefulness. It's mm. really, it offers hope, but in the midst of pain. Um, and so I think obviously the, the Eucharist, as you say, it's in a sense grotesque, um, even in its graciousness, but sure. it is this picture of like Christ in pain for us. Yeah, that's right. Actually, um, kind of recently, I got into a bit of a Twitter conversation about whether Jesus was traumatized. Mm. And I tend to err on the side of yes, I think Jesus could be a trauma survivor for quite a lot of reasons. Um, firstly, because Jesus comes from quite a long lineage of trauma. And now we yeah. know a lot about historical trauma. We know a lot about inherited trauma um, for different reasons. And also I wonder if, you know, Jesus is under quite a lot of systemic oppression, right? And in first century Palestine, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, he's displaced, forcibly displaced when he's a baby yeah. and there's loss and bereavement and the foreshadowing of his death from quite a young age. Um, and then I suppose it's, it's difficult to say whether or not 
the cross is a trauma that he survives and comes back from, partly because in some ways he doesn't act like a trauma survivor, but we only get a snapshot of what he does after um, mm. after the, the resurrection, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and does it, I suppose the other question is, does it make a difference if God suffers? This is the, um, I remember reading Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God when I was at university and I was literally, I was up to here with theology. I thought, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's so ridiculous. It's exclusionary and it annoys me and there's no women and it's boring and I can't be bothered fighting with people all the time about it. I just don't want to do it. Um, and then I sat down and read that book and I was like, I have to change my mind. <laughs> I'm back. I'm totally back. Because um, Moltmann has this incredible idea about the way that God suffers through Christ on the cross. Um, and that really kind of hooked me and I thought that was so, so interesting. But does that, I, yeah, I, I still wonder what that means in practical terms. Like, how does that help people? Is it just a comfort or does it actually... I suppose there's, there's some kind of systems of theology that are underpinned by that idea that we need God to understand suffering. We need God to have mm. suffered um, in order to make sense of things. So a lot of liberation theologies, I, I guess, mm-hmm. are like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Circling back a little bit, I was interested, you know, a lot of the earlier conversation, we were talking about bodies and harm done to them. Um, and I really appreciated that um, later on, you were talking more about care for bodies. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's just important to be you know, conscious of our body-ness. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, how we can continue to care for trauma survivors and to love them. I also, I mean, again, this is anecdotal, but it reminded me of this picture of like the best friends I have that are like, come sit in my office and I'll like, here's a piece of chocolate or here's a pillow or something (laughs) like that. There's just a recognition that like those physical acts of care, even if they are, I mean, in the scheme of things, relatively insignificant are oh so powerful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a colleague the other day who um, I haven't seen for a really long time who made me a cup of tea. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's like so nice because I was in between. I'm doing interviews for a new project at the moment. And yeah, I was I, I had just spoken to somebody and I was feeling like a bit overwhelmed by their story. And just even like that little kind of warming cup of tea. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I've warmed my hands up. You know, um, I'm Scottish, so we love our tea. We're obsessed. We have the best tap water in the world, bar none. So, you know, it's, it's a good, graceful act to make a cup of tea. Um, so there's small things like that. But I think also just there will be, I think I'm becoming more conscious of the fact that there will be people who have a difficult relationship with embodiment, mm. um, either because mm-hmm. they don't feel at home in their bodies for Mm -hmm. one reason or another. So I've heard from friends who are trans or non-binary that that's the case for them. Or there are people who in completely different ways feel not at home in their body because it's been violated in some way. So embodiment is is painful for some people. Um, And I think it's about easing into understanding your body. So finding Mm -hmm. ways that, you know, it feels good to take care of your body. Like, what, yeah. what do you like doing? Um, 
I like being outside. I like being with my dog. I like going for long walks, things like that, especially if I am feeling like there's um, there's a book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. Um, and it's kind of the trauma textbook, I suppose, for a lot of people. Um, and on days when I, I say to my husband, my body's keeping the score today, yeah. <laughs> you know, like what can you do? So I suppose um, everybody's individual. And if you do know somebody who is living with trauma, I guess the question is, what do they need in particular? Because mm-hmm. it might be very, very different from what somebody else needs. So ask. Thanks, Katie. That's really helpful. And it was a really helpful reminder to me that it can be really difficult to be embodied. I mean, for the reasons that you've named and then those who whose trauma response is disassociation. And it takes a really long time to do that work of getting back, so to speak. So that, that makes so much sense. I appreciate that. Well, as a uh, final question, um, thank you so much for uh, this this conversation. Uh, just curious about uh, any additional work that you're doing at the moment on in this area, uh, broadly related to trauma and theology, and 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 from a feminist angle. Any anything that you're currently working on that you'd love to uh, share with us? Absolutely. Um, I'll be completely honest. I thought I would take a wee break from trauma, and that I would go and try something different. Um, and I kind of went back to ideas of um, secularism, secularity, what happens when people leave church. And I started a new research project a couple of months ago about um, church leavers. So people who leave the church for whatever reason, and rather naively thought to myself, okay, well, this won't be a trauma-related project. It will just be listening to people talk about how they pray outside of church. And of course, how naive of me, it's very heavily trauma-influenced um, I think not because I've had dealings with trauma or because I've asked people to talk about it, but just because um, when people leave church, that sort of naturally comes up. There are a lot of reasons that are deeply traumatic why people would leave. Yeah. So I uh, tried to dodge trauma and didn't. Um, so that's that's good. Uh, that's right at the start at the moment, but I'm continuing um, Yeah, working on gender-based violence um, and trying to get into activism on that as well, um, kind of locally. And that's been really rewarding and really good. Um, and yeah, just staying in those networks of people. Again, the community around trauma theology is so important. That's a really, really important um, set of people and networks that we have. Katie, thank you so much. This has been such an excellent conversation, really stimulating. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.